For a while, I thought I was going to have to leave Brazos County, Texas, because I had too many connections and I knew too many people and blah, blah, blah. And it was the old timers who sat me down and said, you will stay here and you will look this community in the eye and you will pay back what you have done. And I'm so forever grateful for that. The wisdom of these people who have been trudged that road before me. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, giving me some direction, some meaning and some purpose in life. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. From Studio AA Deep in the heart of Texas, a big tally-ho and diddly-dee out to all of you. And that was the voice of Mickey B that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 259 and you will be hearing so much more from Mickey B in just a moment but first things first this here episode is coming out to you from or being sponsored by Laura and Tanya and Aaron and what may you ask did Laura and Tanya and Aaron do to get mentioned at the beginning of this here episode where they went to our website, soberspeak.com. They made a little, they clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Laura and Tanya and Aaron for your contributions. Help us keep the virtual lights on. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. All right, so there's a couple of pieces of audio that I've been meaning to share, and I've been forgetting about it because it's out of a normal part of my workflow to uh, put this these episodes out on the air. I won't bore you with all that minutia, but anyway, uh, so I have a, we're we're gonna get to our speaker Mickey B in a moment, but uh, I'm gonna do one piece of uh, audio. I guess you would call this listener feedback from Marie. So here you go, Marie. Well, good morning, John. I just woke up and I love listening to you sober speak. Uh, my name is Marie and I am an alcoholic. I heard my very good friend, Carol L. You just surprised me with all these beautiful speakers you have there. And I just wanted you to hear my voice on that. Thank you so much for what you do for all of us here out in the uh, virtual world which we're really not in the virtual world, if you know what I mean. 
Um, but you keep us connected. And for that, I'm forever grateful for the medium you use to help me stay sober. Have a great day. Well, wait a minute. I heard a speaker say, just have a day. You describe it. So anyway, have a day. Talk to you later, John. And I am listening. Bye. Well, Bree, thank you so much for sending in that voicemail. It was uh, so good to hear your voice. Uh, thank you for all of your kind words, and I hope you have a day as well. And thank you also for being part of our, our virtual community we have set up here. Thank you so much for sending that in, Marie. So our speaker today, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up our speaker. I'm going to give her an introduction. Right after the introduction, we're going to play a a song for you. And then right after that, we're going to go into Mickey B. So Mickey B is from Bryan, Texas. And uh, this episode is called, Thank God I Didn't Get What I Deserve. Believe it or not, she actually doesn't say that in this particular episode, but that's what she preferred for the title because it usually is something that she says in the uh, talks that she gives. So I wanted to go ahead and honor that. But anyway, Mickey is a quote real alcoholic, unquote, and has been sober for 35 years. As Mickey said, uh, (laughs) during our discussions, she said, I started stealing as soon as I could walk, and I started lying as soon as I could talk. I (laughs) I love that. She said, my problem was living sober. Uh, Mickey was involved in quite a bit of, uh, I guess what you would call criminal activity uh, to support the various habits uh, she had created. And uh, listen in as uh, Mickey discusses the gift of surrender, uh, her jury trial that she had to go through. Uh, her boyfriend actually taking his own life. Uh, also, we discuss uh, Mickey's uh, probation officer and the wonderful influence that that PO had on Mickey's life. You also want to hear about the full pardon that Mickey received from the governor of Texas. That's a, an, an incredible story. So, so before we go into Mickey, though, I'm going to play about it. I don't think it's about two and a half minute song here. And this song... Is called The Big Book Boogie <laughs> by Doug R. Now, Doug R. has actually been, you can go look him up. He has been on the podcast in the past. We, ha- we have an episode from Doug R. And uh, I was in a conversation with Joe Muck, uh, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, something like that. And we were talking about uh, music and about how we have so many talented musicians within uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and in Al-Anon and all their various recovery programs. And um, I uh, and, and Joe had suggested to me that I speak with Doug R. and see if we could get his tune called Big Book Boogie on the podcast. So I reached out to Doug and I, I, so just so you know, I'm going to put a link to Doug's website in the show notes. So if you want to go download it yourself and play it, do whatever you want to do, you can do that. Or you could just come back to this episode and listen to it again, whatever you would like to do. But I got to tell you, every time I say that big book boogie, I think of the tube steak, tube snake boogie by... (laughs) 
<laughs> Tube Snake Boogie by uh, ZZ Top. <laughs> Oh, I won't go into what that one's about, but it's a very uh, uh, interesting song. It's got a good little beat. Oh, no pun intended. Ah, ah, I'm sorry. I just went down a bad, a bad uh, uh, trail there. Nonetheless, uh, here is Big Book Boogie by Doug R. And after this uh, concludes, we'll go right into Mickey's episode and more treats. We're going to have plenty. Oh, listener feedback on the end of this episode. Enjoy. Barely have we seen a person fail. Whether coming off a bender or coming out of jail. There is a solution that's what you're looking for. Just open up the book and read the first 164 How it works and into action Tell you how to save your life And they even got a chapter for your boss and for your wife Working with others, we agnostics Build story and the rest But we are not a glum, not in the part I love the best It's in the book In the book It's in the big book In the book You'll find all your if you simply take a look, if you want to quit your drinking, son, come along with us. Read that big book, Alcoholics So today we are sitting here with the one and only Miss Mickey B. So Mickey, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you would like to, and tell people where you live, please. All right. Thank you, John. My name is Mickey. I'm a real alcoholic, and I've been sober by God's grace since February 5th of 1987. And I live in Bryan, Texas, uh, Sister City to College Station. Some of you may have heard of Texas A&M University before. So, uh, yes, I'm here. It's hot, and we're just trying to stay cool. 
That's right. So February 5th of 1987, do I, am I, am I doing the math right? When we come up on February of this year, you'll have 35 or did you just pass 35? I just passed 35. It'll be 36 in February. 35 years sober. Well, that's great, Mickey. So we're going to try our best to kind of cover that in a short period of time. Uh, first things, I just want to go ahead and say I had a couple of guys named Ricky uh, reach out to me and uh, beg me to have you on the podcast. One of them's Ricky R. Yes. in Texas. You know him. Very well. And then the... Uh, yeah, and then the other is Ricky C, uh, who who's local here with me. He saw you speak at, uh, I don't know, I, th- I think it's something that they had recently. I don't know if it was like a Zoom meeting or an in-person meeting to where they had you speak at a uh, some sort of celebration they have. So uh, you've known Ricky R for uh, some time. period of time? Yes, long time. And I always tell him, Ricky, I'll do anything for you. So being a virgin on the podcast, I'm doing this for Ricky. (laughs) So you're a podcast virgin. We'll try to make it. We'll try to make this uh, uh, as painless as possible as we can for you. So uh, it's pretty easy. All right. So. Let's talk a little. By the way, I love your name, Mickey B. I don't know. It just it just rolls off the tongue. It's fantastic. So you live in Bryant, Texas, like you said. Uh, have you lived down there your entire life, or no? Actually, I'm a army brat, and so I lived overseas. And uh, but I got to Texas as quick as I could. Yeah, there's a bumper sticker down here that says that yeah. I'm the same way. Yeah. Right. So I've been I've been living here in Texas since the early '80s. Okay. So I was an Air Force brat for the first six years of my life. And I got to Texas as quick as I could, like they said, and I've lived here since then. And so, uh, so where did you, so where, where did you live overseas? Uh, Germany. Yeah. We lived in Germany. I was actually born in Augusta, Georgia at Fort Gordon. And, uh, my sister was born in Fort Hood here in Texas. And, uh, we went to Germany when I was, when I was pretty young. Any other siblings besides that sister? I have no. I have one older sister, and uh, she has passed away. So, oh, yeah, sorry to hear. It that. was tough. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you uh, were an army brat. Uh, you kind of uh, lived all over the place for a while. Uh, what about high school? Where did you go to high school? Was that here in the United States? Yes, actually, I graduated high school in Hearn, Texas. Some of y'all may know where Hearn is. I'm sorry, but. My home group is over there, too. You know, I took my first drink in Hearn, and uh, that's my home group is in Hearn. It's about 20 miles up the road. Did you take your last drink in Hearn? No, unfortunately. Uh, uh, here in Bryan. It's all right. Okay, so so you got, so so you're, you're doing some drinking. You're starting that in Hearn, Texas. Anything else you want to say about, I don't know, your formative years before we move on to uh, Hearn, Texas, and your drinking, as we call it, career, which is always a wonderful word? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'll follow your lead, John. Okay. Well, so you started uh, drinking in Hearn, Texas. So, um, what got you, I, I guess I'm wondering 
before you started drinking, did you have any inkling that there may be some sort of, uh, were there any yellow flags for you? Or was there anything you'd seen in your history, your family, anything like that? Or did you just start drinking and go, oh, wow, this is fun? My, my father was a very abusive alcoholic. He was a wife beater and a child beater. And my mother finally could not take the abuse anymore and asked him to leave. You know, for a lot of years, I, I thought my father chose alcohol over his family, that he didn't love us, that he abandoned us. But what I know today is I, I believe he left because that was the only kind and loving thing he could do because he could not stop drinking. And I didn't understand that. I was about 10 years old when he left, and I, I didn't understand that. My mother is a saint, I will tell you that, and she has worked hardest, uh, taken on jobs that men had in order to provide for my sister and I. Now, my sister was uh, a little bit older. She was three years older than I was, and uh, so I'm trying to follow in her footsteps, but um, there was something wrong with me long before I ever took that first drink, and it was selfishness and self-centeredness, and it was all about me all the time, and uh, I never cared about what my mom was going through or uh, what anybody else was going through. It was just all about me. And I, it's kind of like I had this anxiety in me that I, I think children get medicated for nowadays. And maybe I should have been medicated. But, um, you know, it was just I started doing outlandish things. And my sister was the class favorite. She was the cheerleader. She was the straight A student. And on Friday nights, while she was cheering the Hearn football team on, I was in the parking lot stealing hubcaps. I wasn't good at getting positive attention, but I was good at getting negative attention. And if you're a kid like me, negative attention was better than no attention. Wow. Okay. So I can see the dynamic there uh, from the beginning. Uh, when you had uh, that first drink, was it like a relief for you? Or wh what do you remember feeling from that? So my friend and I, you know, I had some little hoodlum friends because we were all little hoodlums and we were walking down the street and the neighbor had his garage door open. And in his garage were these cases of long neck Miller beer. I can still see that old gold label. And uh, being the little thieves that we were, because I started stealing as soon as I could walk and I started lying as soon as I could talk. And so <laughs> we went in there and stole some of this man's Long neck Miller beer. It was in the heat of the summer. It was hot. We didn't know anything about drinking. So we got down to her house and opened it up and it foamed all over. We sucked that foam off. We drank some of that. And I'm going to tell you something happened to me that never happened before. It just went in there and quieted the madness. I had my first hangover. We were 12 years old and I had my first hangover that next morning. And we were in the bathroom putting water on our faces. Our heads were pounding. Our eyes were bloodshot. And my friend said, I will never do that again. And the rest of our years in junior high and high school, she never did. But I looked at her and I said, you're absolutely right. I'll never do that again either. And I never drank hot Miller beer again. <laughs> but that brief period of intoxication was so elusive that for the next 20 years of my life, I would do whatever I could to experience that sense of ease and comfort that came at once by taking a few drinks. Uh, 
And so that was the start of a journey. Um, so how long did that uh, uh, drinking, I guess, career uh, last? And can you kind of give me a thumbnail sketch of what went on during those years? So I immediately became a blackout drinker, you know, and, and uh, uh, that's what I was looking for, that complete annihilation and not having to worry about anything or anyone and uh, just going for the gusto. And uh, twenty, I had a 20-year history uh, with that. Um, I don't know anything about social drinking. I drank to get drunk. The only thing I ever did socially was spread a little VD. And, of course, we back in the 60s and 70s, you know. And so. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I drank to get drunk and I drank for oblivion. And I'm so grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that has given me the ability to look back at that. You know, very quickly in my drinking, uh, while I was in high school, I started developing a reputation for being able to drink the football players under the table. Now, I thought I was just getting cool. I had a guy tell me one time if I'd have gotten any cooler, I would have froze to death. Um, <laughs> but I thought I could handle alcohol where my father obviously could not. And, uh, you know, I thought I was handling it, but I was developing this allergy to alcohol and it, you know, it's progressive. It just continued to get worse in, in my case, very quickly. All right. So you're going down this path. Um, you're doing some continuous blackout drinking, which I can relate to, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I just thought it was normal, by the way. I just right. thought everybody blacked did. out. Right. Right. It's just like, I, you know, I thought everyone was blacking out when they drank. It was just part of the deal. But apparently it's uh, kind of a, a warning sign. However, uh, you're going through this period. And uh, what? when did you kind of start to realize that, okay, this is an issue. I may need to do something about this eventually. Did you realize it from the get-go? Was it more toward the end of your drinking? It was toward the end of my drinking to that incomprehensible demoralization. You know, I started uh, uh, doing out, outlandish things. You know, I started hanging out in pool halls at a, at a young age. I was hustling pool. I started getting tattoos at a young age because girls didn't do that. So I was going to do that. Now everybody's got tattoos. But, uh, you know, I mean, I was a rebel with a cause and I was rebel without a cause, you know, and just, just be cause, um, you know, and uh, defied society and everything. And uh, I got I found better living through chemistry when I was about 14 and I started smoking those funny cigarettes. I started taking a lot of prescription pills. My name was never on the bottle, but took a lot of prescription pills. And, uh, you know, it was not uncommon to find me out in a cow pasture after a heavy rain. I took those black market pills that you take trips and never leave the room. Mm. Want to paint a house without a ladder, lay on the ground, listen to the grass grow. You know, whatever I could to make me feel different. Because, And when I tell you I'm a real alcoholic, as I said in the beginning, my problem's not drinking, and it's not those other things I do after drinking. My problem is living life sober. I don't like sober. Sober was boring and depressing, and I grew restless, irritable, and discontent. 
My problem was living life sober. I can so relate to that. I think a lot of people listening are going to be able to relate to that as well. Can you talk about that a little bit more? What do you mean by my problem was living life sober? Like I said, I just don't like the way I feel when I'm sober. I have this inside energy and this anxiety, and I, I can't be still in my own skin. And there were times I would just feel like I was going to erupt out of my skin. And, uh, you know, alcohol and those other things made me a way to where I could be all right in my own skin. Okay, so now we're getting up. So what age did you finally come uh, into Alcoholics Anonymous? Was it like your late 20s or I think I was 31 years old when I got sober. And uh, okay. A lot of stuff had happened, you know, um, and the things that I was doing, uh, criminal activity to support the habits that I had, and I became just a complete detriment to society. And I'm, you know, I always tell people, if you're paranoid, they're out to get you. They are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, in 1986, I was arrested for a first-degree felony, punishable by up to 99 years in the penitentiary. So things started getting pretty serious. That was in uh, 86, 1986, and uh, things started getting serious. I was offered at my plea bargain uh, 20 years in prison, and I decided not to take that. I was going to go to the jury. I'd gotten into some, I bonded out and gotten into some more trouble. And so I was held at no bond in Brazos County Jail. Now, that's pretty helpless and pretty hopeless. And, uh, you know, I, I lost everything that was important to me, including my children. Uh, and no uh, marriage could last with the things that I was doing. And I was just hanging out with my buddies, my pals and my compadres. And they call that organized crime. And they don't like it over here in Brazos County. <laughs> so I'm in jail. I've got these charges on me. And uh, I listen to that jailhouse talk, you know, that if you go to AA, it looks good when you go to court. I'm sure that doesn't happen, John, in Frisco, where you are. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the deal. And so I went to my first AA meeting, uh, you know, after I set a trial date. Uh, by the way, they said it was a jury of my peers, but there wasn't anybody there I would have hung out with. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they, you know, they, they let me out again to wait for this trial, and I decided to go check out an AA meeting. So I go in to the Brian group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they did what we do. They welcomed me with open arms, and they said, come in, take a seat. You are the most important person here. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm facing 99 years in prison. Of course, I'm the most important person here. <laughs> and this guy got up and started talking about his drinking got so bad that his wife left him. And the pain of that was so great that he put the plug in the jug and he went to AA and his wife came back and his life is wonderful. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, one wife, one time? I mean... <laughs> Hang in there. Don't give up, you know? And but he was talking about true love, and I was so far removed from any of those emotions. I didn't know what he was talking about. 
And this girl jumped up and she had saved enough money from this minimum wage part-time job she had to buy this used vehicle and everybody just applauded. And I thought, chick, see me after the meeting, man. I'll get you a better deal than that. Might not have a title, but I'll get you a better deal than that. She was talking about a day's pay for a day's wage and I couldn't hear the music of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And, uh, People always say when you hit bottom, there's only one way but up. And uh, I hit bottom and flopped around like a fish out of water. Uh, I couldn't come up. I didn't know how. There was one person who was left in my life. Uh, he had hung in there with me. He watched me lose all those material possessions that I thought were so important. He watched me lose my children. He watched me lose everything. Uh, and he came to me one night. And uh, made made some grave errors. Uh, one of the things he started asking me about was what life was about. And I had no clue. And then he began to ask me what I was going to do. And I had no clue. And then he pointed out that I was doing exactly the same thing that got me in all of this in the first place. And anytime anyone reminds me of my failures, I do whatever I have to do to get you out of my face. If that's attack you physically, I'm down for that. But I think worse is attacking someone verbally. I try with all I have today to guard my tongue because you can make amends for the things that you say, but you can never unring the bell. And I cut that young man up and I just sliced him up and he finally dropped his shoulders and he said, you know, Mickey, I can't live like this anymore. And he walked out the door. As I made the grandstand play, you go ahead and leave, big boy, because I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. And I believed that at the time. But he walked out, and I went back in. To, we were living in an abandoned house. No running water, no electricity. I had my little Coleman stove. And uh, I went back in and did what I needed to do to make it go away for one more day. The sun came up as it always does, and I went outside and I found his solution to our problems. And that young man's body hung from a tree limb with a rope around his neck. And while I was in there making it go away for one more night, he was making it go away for eternity. I looked death in the face that morning. And when you have no God in your life, death is a scary proposition. I started running. I just started running, trying to outrun this head that I was just consumed with everything all the time. And uh, finally, the gift happened for me. It was the gift of surrender. And surrender for me came in a form of a tear. And as one tear went down my face, it opened the floodgates for years of uncried tears. And uh, I pulled off the side of the road. I was in this old truck. I pulled off on the side of the road. And literally just bawled like a baby. After a while, I sat up and I looked around and I had this deja vu feeling. I knew I had been there before, but I couldn't figure it out until I saw people walking down the sidewalk carrying our beautiful book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was outside that stupid AA meeting I had been to many months before. And it was a quarter to eight and people were going in. I knew, John, that I had to get in there or I was going to die. And uh, I didn't know what was going to happen, but that was the start of my journey. 
We will be continuing our conversation with Mickey B in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Okay, now back to Mickey. All right, so I got a couple, three different questions. Number one, I want to know about your children. I want to know about your marriages. And then I also want to know about this trial that was pending. So you take those in any order you want. So I'm... While I was in high school, as I mentioned, uh, I'm grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I did my first fifth step, uh, I realized that all my life, all I ever wanted was to feel loved, to feel special, to feel needed, to feel important. And I didn't know how to get that. I didn't learn that from my home. And uh, so what happened for me at the age of 16 is I traded all of that for sex. And in 1972, I found myself pregnant and not knowing what to do. If you're 16 and pregnant in this day and age, it's not a big deal. But in 1972, in small town Texas, it was a big deal. My sister had moved to Austin, and I went and stayed with her and brought this child into the world. A family came into my life and said they would take that child and raise it as their own with the understanding that I would never see that child again. And I had to sign paper agreeing to that. You know, that was, uh, I came back to Hearn, Texas with a scarlet letter on my forehead. Everyone knew what had happened. And uh, I literally, at 16 years of age, had to have alcohol or some other chemical in my body that would allow me to walk out on the street and hold my head up and say, I don't care what you think. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. I have that built-in sixth sense. I knew what everybody was thinking. And I shame myself to the pit of hell for what happened. 45 minutes after I graduated high school, I don't know how I graduated other than I thought, I think they wanted me out of there. Um, I moved, I, I'm gone. I'm making my first geographical change in uh, my cure. And I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to start over and I'll find me a good man and I'll get married. I'll have children to replace this child because I had this God-sized hole that I was trying to fill up with other people and things. And there's only one thing you can fill a God-sized hole with. So I move, I'm going to go and I'm going to join the PTA. And I had all these wonderful plans and ideas, but I had no way to carry them out. So I moved to a small town outside of New Orleans, Louisiana, where they party 24-7. And that was not a good move for someone like me. I was there two weeks and I ended up in jail. I was too proud to call home. Uh, I, and I've, I've learned it only takes, it doesn't take a genius to get out of jail. It just takes time. And, uh, you know, what happened is I ended up marrying the guy I got busted with. So he couldn't testify against me and I couldn't testify against him and made perfect sense at the time. <laughs> and I was desperate to fill this void. And I had two children out of that marriage and moved back to Texas in the early eighties. As I mentioned, um, because the heat was on, <laughs> it was getting mm -hmm. bad. It was one of those spiritual moves in the middle of the night where you're throwing everything in the U-Haul trailer and heading for the border. And, um, you know, by the time I got back to Texas, I had made a lot of really poor decisions. And one of those was I let a friend put a needle in my arm. And when I got back to Texas, I was drinking alcoholically. 
I was putting that poison in my veins. I was taking all those outrageous other pills. And I was doing what I had to do one day at a time to support what I was doing. And I became a person that I absolutely detest, and as well as Brazos County did. Wow. Okay. So uh, let's go back then. Oh, we the 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 pending trial. That's where we left off. Okay. So uh, the trial was ugly. It was horrible. Uh, they found me guilty because I was, and uh. This jury came back with some compassion. I didn't believe so at the time, but they came back with some compassion and they gave me probably the worst sentence you can do to somebody like me. They gave me 10 years intense supervision probation. I was furious. Now, I didn't want to go to prison for 20 years or 99 years, but I was prepared to go do my turnaround and come back out. But these people had me. And I was so angry, and I know today that that was fear, because I knew I would never stay sober 10 years. Mm -hmm. I knew they had me. So I, you know, that's where I started. And so were you going through this trial while you were actually in Alcoholics Anonymous? Is that right? No, I had gone to just a, a few meetings. So what happened was, uh, I went to the, those couple of AA meetings in the early days, and I was like, this is not for me. My ego was screaming I was too bad for Alcoholics Anonymous. That, that's just arrogance. And uh, I went through that trial. Uh, I was convicted in December of 86. My boyfriend committed suicide in January of 1987, and I got sober February 5th, which is the day I started probation. Okay, so let's back up there a little bit. You said your boyfriend committed suicide. Uh, take me through that period. What? Um, I mean, tell me what you want to tell me about that. You know, a lot of people told me a lot of ridiculous things about his death. They told me he was a coward, that he couldn't face life on life's terms. And I mean, we were living in this abandoned house and in... It was, it was just awful. We had nothing. When I got busted, they took everything that was of any value or importance. And I, uh, you know, when he died, it just really brought me to a deeper level of, of who, I, who I really had become. They told me he was a coward. And, and you know, I, I don't think it was about being a coward any more than I believe it's about being brave. What his death was about was being in so much pain that this illness causes us that death seems like your only solution. I know today, without a doubt, he sits at the right hand of God, but I'm going to tell you that was, it was tough because I knew I was responsible for his death. <sighs> okay, so let's go out. When did, um, I guess, recovery really start to take uh, some, when did it get traction in your life? So I knew, I, and, and again, I don't know how I remembered. I've got all this trauma in my life. I've lost my children. I've lost everything that was important. Uh, my boyfriend has committed suicide and now I'm supposed to start this probation. And, uh, 
Because of the Christmas holidays, they gave me until February 5th to start probation. It is nothing shy of a miracle that I remembered I was supposed to start probation on February 5th. Um, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have text reminders. I didn't have a mailbox, you know. <laughs> but somehow I showed up at probation. And uh, because of this probation officer, you know, really for the first time, someone showed me and, and gave me some correct information about about alcoholism. I, I didn't understand it at all. And uh, so I, I went in and I met with this probation officer and she tried every way to get me into something. I mean, I had gone to enough AA meetings after um, after I had my surrender that I knew it was total abstinence. And so I went totally abstinent and it got a lot worse before it got better. And I, my skin was peeling, my hair was falling out. I mean, I'm five ten, and I weighed a buck fifteen, and I thought I was looking good. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I was sunk in places you're not supposed to be sunk in. And this probation officer, you know, said, "God, Mickey, can you do this?" And I said, "No, I can't." And she tried everything to get me into some facility, and there was nothing available for people like me. So. Alcoholics Anonymous, when they say they can love you sober, I'm living proof. I went to those meetings. I had nowhere else to go, and I would just go to meetings three and four and five times a day because that's what it took for me to stay sober that day. Hmm. After about five weeks, I started feeling a little bit better, and that's a danger point for me because when I started feeling better, I'm sitting in the back of the room, I'm telling everybody how big and tough, bad and tough I am. I'm telling you what it's like out there on the street. And finally, a guy named Charlie. Every group's got a Charlie. He's got 15 years sober, has an answer for everything. I found out that if they these old timers don't know the answer, they tell you it's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I use that all the time now. And so Charlie said, why don't you fix your coffee and come up and sit with us, Mickey? And I said, okay, they finally want to hear what it's like out there, you know? <laughs> and uh, I sat next to Charlie, who leaned over to me and said, sit here and shut up and listen. And Charlie saved my life. For the next three months, the only thing they let me do was say in a meeting was to read how it works, because there were no cuss words in how it works. And then... <laughs> Then they made me the <laughs> greeter at the door. And you had to really want to be sober when I was greeter at the door because I don't look anything like I look today. Um, like I mentioned, I'm 5'10". I was just so thin. And I came in with these these uh, blue jeans or leather pants tucked in these knee-high boots with a brass tip on the end because I was bad. <laughs> I wore these black T-shirts with the sleeves cut out and the neck cut out. Because I was hot. I had a big <laughs> wallet in my back pocket with a dog chain that hung down to my knee, hooked up on my belt because I was bad. And I had a big wad of keys on my hip, so it made a lot of noise when I walked. You heard me long before you ever saw me. Now, I'm living in an abandoned house. My truck starts with a screwdriver, but I got a big wad of keys on my hip. That's important, you know? And they just tolerated me, you know, just tolerated me. I was so angry and so hurt and so disturbed. And they just tolerated me. They gave me nourishment. They would put some gas in my feet in this old truck that I had. 
which by the way, I got this truck in a drug deal. I gave a guy half a gram of dope. He gave me the truck. I figured it out <laughs> out one day and that truck cost me $12 and 50 cents and I got ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> you started it with a screwdriver, yeah, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> it had been sunk in a tank of water. So the entire floorboard was rusted out. I had to steal carpet to put in the in the floorboard to keep trash from blowing up on me when I was going down the road. So, and I'm living in an abandoned house. I don't have anything but the clothes on my back. And that's what you got. That's what you got when I came to AA. Mm. Broken. So, I, you know, and, and I always go through this with, someone who's been 35 years sober, uh, you know, how do you sum up the past 35 years? Uh, take me through some I don't, high points, low points, wherever you want to do, where, wherever your thought process takes you, Mickey. So I, as I, I mentioned, you know, I, I would go into these meetings and I, would, I, I started complaining. I became a chronic complainer in AA. I'm sure that doesn't, not the, didn't have the only group that that happens, but, you know, I had nothing. And, and so I'm complaining. I'm a convicted felon and uh, can't get a job or, you know, all of this. And this woman came up to me after the meeting to tell me that I was full of shit. And I turned around to explained to her I was the most important person at the meeting, but my mouth opened and a voice like mine asked her to be my sponsor because Charlie kept talking about a sponsor, sponsor, sponsor. And I, I hated women. I mean, really detested women. I figured out in a fifth step that I detested women because I thought they were all like me. And so, uh, you know, Linda turned around and looked at me from the top of my head to the tip of my toes and square in the eye and said, I don't like you, but I will help you because I have to stay sober. And she took mm -hmm. me, she took me to the book. Um, I would complain about things and she would say ugly things like get a job. And so <laughs> I, I went to the noon meeting and I said, are there, they said, are there any AA related announcements? And I said, yes, I need a job. And by the time, <laughs> by the time that meeting was over, I had my first sober job in years, years and years and years. And uh, I went to work in a sink factory drilling holes in marble sinks on an assembly line. I learned about a day's pay for a day's wage. And I learned about punching a time clock. And I learned about being on time and being responsible. And when I got my first paycheck and I put my dollar in the basket when they passed it, I got a standing ovation, you know, and they said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm still going and I'm reporting to probation. I'm going to three and four or five meetings a day. And I start getting involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first 15 years I was sober, I was in a prison somewhere every weekend. I got involved in the H&I committee and I was going to treatment centers and sometimes spreading the disease rather than recovery, but I'm doing what I'm told to do. And uh, I, I just started going and I, on the, uh, if the JCs or the Lions Club wanted to know about AA, I'm your girl, take me, let's go. You know, and I just started loving the fact that I, you know, in working the steps, I found this conscious contact with a 
power greater than myself. And I just started um, feeling free. You know, even though I'm a convicted felon, I just started feeling free. And uh, life started taking on a new meaning. And all those promises started happening in my life. Um, five years sober, my children came back to live with me because they wanted to, not because they had to. You know? Oh, wow. And What was that like? Oh, so, yeah. I mean, my goodness, I can't even imagine. How, how did that occur? Well, I had been the weekend mom, and I had paid child support. wasn't much, but I paid what I could, absolutely, doing the right thing. And uh, my probation officer was very influential in my life, and she got me back into school. And I uh, started going to school, and I got a few initials behind my name, and it led me into a career uh, that I retired in 2020, um, you know. And uh, things just started happening. Even though I was convicted by a jury and sentenced to 10 years of probation, because of the actions I had taken in Alcoholics Anonymous, just doing what I was asked because I don't want to die. I don't want to die. So I'm doing what's asked. At a, at a third of my sentence, three and, a, three and a third years, the judge calls me in his chambers and he said, Mickey, I hear about the good work you're doing in our community. And I believe you are a changed person. And he released me from the bondage of the state of Texas. And I couldn't believe it. My probation officer, as I mentioned, very influential in my life. She said, I want you to take some further action. And in 1994, after taking that action, I received a full pardon from the governor of the state of Texas. Wow. It's hanging on the wall over there. Yeah. You know, I don't need a pardon to boost my ego. I think you can probably tell that by now. But I knew <laughs> God had some purpose in this. And uh, so I went to work for a nonprofit organization and had worked my way up to middle management. And about 25 years ago, we had major funding cuts in the state of Texas. And when you have major funding cuts, the first thing that goes is middle management. I had not had to look for a job since I raised my hand in that AA meeting. But about 25 years ago, I was about 10 years sober, I'm unemployed and I don't know what to do. And I get a phone call and a familiar voice says, hey, I hear you're looking for a job. And I said, yes. And she said, why don't you come work with us? And that familiar voice was my probation officer. Oh. And I have retired in 2020 from adult probation where I was on probation. Wow. Very cool. <laughs> and I believe I was exactly where God wanted me to be because there were people just like me would come and sit across my desk and they would say, yeah, lady, but you don't understand. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> 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 and you know you uh, are have been talking and people can't obviously i'm not going to release an image of you but i can see you right and you look just uh, you're a, a very well put together woman and you look I, I, you know i just can't even imagine you looking like you looked and uh, golly that is just absolutely fantastic yeah. it's been a it's been a really really good ride it really really has okay so you have people listening to you that are uh, <clears throat> all over the world uh, there's a lot of people who uh, really kind of like, uh, 
Much like I'm sure people who have sat down across from you that are uh, on probation and uh, they don't know sometimes if AA is for them. Share your experience, strength, and hope in terms of what you want people to know regarding Alcoholics Anonymous, possibly what it's done for your life, and kind of a, a message that you would like them to hear. Alcoholics Anonymous got me involved with the, uh, with the living. You know, I was, for so many years, I was just dying inside. And, you know, it, it freed me. Uh, by working the steps and, you know, getting to that point. Like when I got to my ninth step, that, well, let me back up. You know, my first, the first step is my problem. The second step is my solution. And when I got to step three, my sponsor said, you will either continue in the problem or you will, you will try life on a spiritual basis. It was simple, a, a simple decision to stay doing what I was doing or try something new. And so I made a decision, I would try something new. And because I had this job on the assembly line, I ended up moving into uh, an apartment that was $200, all bills paid. I mean, I was uptown, you know, <laughs> it was crack alley. And I would get out of my, that old truck and I would hold my breath until I ran in my apartment and closed the door because I didn't want to test positive when I got there, <laughs> showed up for probation. But, you know, I, I just, I was, it was in that little apartment that um, I did that four step and I found out what was wrong with me. You know, uh, for the first time, my sponsor sent me home after the fifth step for that hour of careful consideration. And uh, during that hour, I had to go to the restroom. And when I flipped that light on, I saw my reflection in the mirror and I saw who I truly was. And it was ugly. It was ugly. I saw what a manipulator and a dishonest person I had been my whole entire life. And the lies that I had believed about me and you and them out there were just so outrageous. And the miracle for me happened in the sixth and seventh step. When I finally knew what was wrong with me, I knew what to change. And I knew with AA's direction and God's strength, I could change. And so I, I started doing that and I just got involved. I got to that ninth step and, you know, I had a lot of amends to make. And, you know, for a while I thought I was going to have to leave Brazos County, Texas, because I had too many connections and I knew too many people and blah, blah, blah. And it was the old timers who sat me down and said, you will stay here and you will look this community in the eye and you will pay back what you have done. And I'm so forever grateful for that. You know, the wisdom of these people who have been trudged that road before me. But I, I just, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love, it's given me a life. It's made, given me some direction, some meaning, and some purpose in life. Love it. Love it. Love it. Miss Mickey, that is fantastic. Mickey B, Mickey B. All right, so I'm going to uh, close it up here. Uh, we read, by the way, for being a, as you called it several times before we started and after we started a podcast virgin, yeah. you did absolutely fantastic. You're no longer a podcast virgin. <laughs> Thanks to you, John. <laughs> All right, we ended up here with a, a, a reading from page 164 of the big book. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. 
Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mickey B., as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God God bless bless you, you keep you until then. Mickey, one more time, thank you so much for joining me. I know the listeners are going to absolutely love this. Uh, I look forward to releasing it, and I hope uh, that our paths do cross someday soon. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Mickey B. It was such, such a pleasure to interview you and have you on the program. Uh, It was just absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing your story with the Sober Speak listeners. Now, remember, folks, we don't want you sharing your gossip. Quit gossiping, okay? But we do want you sharing this episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. So take time to pause your device, share this episode or the whole mm, uh, bank of episodes, I guess is what you would call it. The, 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 uh, all of the episodes. All right. Uh, Share that with a friend or family member. Once again, it may be just what they need. You know how to share. You pause your device, you hit that little share button, all that kind of stuff. All right. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback for Ewan's. Kelly DMs on the Instagram, on the gram. And she says, wow, John, exclamation point. Thanks for the shout out on Charlie's latest episode. It made me feel like a million bucks. Well, hopefully, Kelly, this shout out will make you feel like two million bucks or a billion bucks or a trillion bucks or whatever. Um, and she says, Maria and I are in touch. We're going to start working together. And she's heading to New York City for a week starting tomorrow on an unofficial AA event. We will be meeting up later this week. Oh, and tonight I close out 38 days or day 38. Very grateful to you and this program, Kelly. So let me give you a little background on that, what she's talking about there. So Kelly DM'd on the Instagram about, I don't know. Uh, well, I, so she's 38 days sober now. So it'd be about about a month ago or so because she was like seven, eight days sober, something like that. And she said, hey, John, thanks listening in on the program. I went to my first meeting, you know, Sober Speak helped get me in there. I appreciate it. And I'm on day seven now. And then I said something to her to the effect of, you know, do you want me to hook you up with another woman in the program? And she listened to Maria's um her uh, episode and she said i can really relate to maria and so i got her and maria in contact with each other and maria lives here in texas near where i am and maria went up to new york city <laughs> for a week to help kelly out or i you know or them just to get together and talk i don't know if she's her official sponsor or whatever but spend some time and and helping her get acquainted with the program i'm like oh my goodness and i know 
for a fact that this is happening because Maria last week sent me a picture of her and Kelly sitting out at a cafe in New York City. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is absolutely wonderful. So anyway, Kelly, I'm glad all that's working out. Thank you, Maria, if you happen to be listening uh, for all your good work. Corey writes in, and Corey writes in, and the subject line is Seeds of Sobriety. Seeds, S-E-E-D-S, Seeds of Sobriety. He says, hi, John. My name is Corey, and I'm an alcoholic. I am at the Bill W. Roundup Conference in Marble Falls, Texas this weekend, and one of the speakers is Rick W., and he puts the title, Rick W. had an episode on Sober Speak, and the title is Insanity Does Not Have an Expiration Date, which I like. And he says, I was able to introduce myself to Rick and tell him how his story helped lead me to sobriety. He suggested I write you and tell you the same. Uh, This time last year, I was a guest at the county jail for the umpteenth time. At this particular jail, they issued tablets to the inmates, and it was there that I found Soberspeak. I first listened to Bill C., Steps 1, 2, and 3 of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then pretty much everything else related to the first three steps. Then I decided to start from the beginning with Persian version. What a great story. Oh, I, I, I love that too. So, oh gosh, I don't want to go into the story again, but Alex Z is basically the reason that I started this particular program. It was episode number two, actually, and uh, we got together and recorded Alex's story. But nonetheless, uh, that's who's being referenced here. And he says, I've never really taken anything in life seriously, except for maybe myself. And everything has always been a joke or game to me. After listening to many of the episodes on Sober Speak, I soon began to grasp the gravity of my situation and disease. Your guest made me realize that if I continue running things my way, I was going to lose this game and die in prison. My wife was able to mail me a big book, and I read it from cover to cover several times. The day I was released, oh, read it uh, uh, from cover to cover several times, period. The day I was released from jail, I checked myself into rehab. Wow, that's cool. Wow. The day I was released from rehab, I walked into my first meeting and then went to another 89 more in the following 90 days. God bless you, Corey. That's fantastic. I got a sponsor and he walked me through the steps. I do service work. I chair a couple of meetings a week and I try to pass the message on to the next alcoholic. I didn't come up with this plan of action. I listened to your podcast, your guests, and and you, I knew before I left jail what I had to do because you taught me. I'm getting a little misty eye here, uh, Corey. I am forever grateful for the AA program, as I am equally grateful to you for planting the seeds of sobriety in my heart. I don't know if I would have ever walked into that first meeting without listening to Sober Speak first. Thank you, John M., for all you do with the podcast. It's been a lifesaver for me. God bless you, Corey E. Corey E., 
You made my day, my friend. Thank you so much for writing in with that. Ah, oh, oh, just, just a blessing. Keep me posted, my friend. Rebecca writes in, and the subject line is in love with AA and sober speak three or four exclamation points. She says, John, I'm a hundred days sober today. Good for you, Rebecca. She says, sober speak is, is in my daily routine. It's so off the charts. Awesome. <laughs> my daughter is a fentanyl and meth addict, homeless on the streets. Naranon, like Al-Anon, but for families of addicts, I'm familiar with it. She says, was my first immersion into a 12-step program. The diversity in speakers you have helped me in both my situation with my daughter and my own alcoholism slash addiction. Big time. Your podcast helps me uh, in big, huge, massive ways. I go to in-person meetings. I have a sponsor. I work the steps and I'm working a solid program. Sober speak is a very big piece of my recovery. I live in Encinitas, which is right next to Vista, California. I'm familiar with that. She says Earl H, right, who is located in Vista, blows my mind and he's such an amazing guest on your show. I'm wondering if I could get some info about the meetings he attends and or recommends in our area. I'm attending all kinds of meetings and I'm looking for the gyms. I'm obvious it'd obviously be cool to meet him in a meeting. He's got incredible wisdom. Thanks for any meeting tips from Earl you could pass along. I'm also contemplating an intervention for my daughter. And even though she knows what she needs to do, and that help is here, um, I'm also trying to stay in my own lane at the same time. (laughs) Big smiley face. Thanks for all you do. Three or four exclamation points, Rebecca H. Well, Rebecca H., as you know, I replied to your email and I copy the one and only Mr. Earl H on that, uh, uh, email and I'll get out of the way and let you guys communicate as you wish. And, uh, yeah, I, I love AA as well. Uh, and like you said in your subject line, and I think Earl is just absolutely fantastic as well. Thanks for writing in. Dana writes in, and Dana says, Dana or Dana? You say potato, I say patata. I don't know. Anyway, Dana, Dana, I don't know. Dana writes in and she says, hello, John M. Dana C. here. I am in East Texas. Uh, I got sober on August 1st, 1997, and I am experiencing a, quote, hard reset, unquote, after my son's moved out and a divorce, so I don't have much more now uh, to say on recovery story except for AA and our big book, Save My Life, and many other lives I would have destroyed for sure. I am thankful and grateful to God, who is our Father of Light, and His grace that uh, keeps us together in His book, uh, in His fellowship, and in His care. I heard about your podcast a few weeks ago from an AA friend named Gary K. Yes, in Sulphur Springs, Texas. That's the Gary K from the pod. So I Googled it and I searched it in my podcast app, and I prefer your website menu to the podcast app for sure. 
fine with me. And she says, hey, I have absolutely loved learning from you and Charlie P. His talks have given me hope again that I will find a sponsor that loves the books and applies the questions from the PPG type approach. And PPG, for those of you who don't know, our primary purpose group. Anyway, she says, someone who could help me find the, quote, missing parts, unquote, is what I was asking God for, and I'm and I am hearing it on Sober Speak, a piece at a time, really amazing. Anyway, John, I am praying for him, she's talking about Charlie P., and Katie, his wife, and expecting more miracle stories to come even beyond cowboys and corny dogs. That, that uh, for those of you who don't know, she's referencing there. She's referencing Charlie P. and the cowboys and corny dog story and how his cancer was uh, discovered. Uh, it's, it's quite an amazing story. Anyway, she says, John, you have really got something here. Way to go, brother. Thank you. And quote, I salute you for your sobriety. Dana C in East Texas. What well, Dana C in East Texas. I salute you. You can't see it, but I'm got my right hand. You know, you put it to your head, like you're doing a salute thing and it's, it's coming right out to you in your sobriety as well dana c n east texas appreciate you and as you know i sent that to uh charlie because uh he can use all the prayer he can get and i know that the man believes in prayer we've talked about it many times tony writes in and uh this is oh from our old friend tony okay so tony says I'm still here, John, and thank you. That's that's the subject line. He says, well, now, well, John, it's now been 13 weeks, and I'm still on my own in Glasgow. Glasgow, where my mother was from. But that's me talking. That's not what he's saying. Uh, and uh, I've mentioned that to Tony in the past. And he says, as you may recall, he, and he's talking about his dad, took seriously ill uh, and now has zero mobility. In addition, I am the only child and I actually don't live in Glasgow. I live in Norway. I mean, this is a tough order, but I have to do it. It's my dad, right? This is ultimate with a capital U, service with a capital S. Sounds like the start of a pity party, John, but it's not. My father has come through lots of pneumonia, kidney damage, subcutaneous infection, and continual gastric reflux. He has been on end-of-life care, been taken off of it, uh, and been put back on it, and it at last has been deemed fit for movement. I am still living in his home. I still have a lot of bureaucratic stuff to go through with the authorities and assess my father's financials to deem what he can, he can contribute to the bill of being in a nursing home. I have some super tough times here, John, on my own, and also some good times with my father, whom I visit almost daily in the hospital. His delirium, unfortunately, not dementia, has been so heavy that he has almost that he has been very foggy, but we have also had some amazing conversations, both funny and serious. 
My family has managed to come over for three weeks, which was amazing. And I have had some ama- um, uh, some small job trips, which have been nuggets of insanity in the daily hectic, no horizon that has been uh, in the daily hectic, no horizon that has been the last 13 weeks. But I have worked through the program daily. I have had daily support from my sponsees and my fellows, and I support and support from both online and physical meetings. And boy, have I prayed. I have felt my sobriety was going to fall on two or three occasions, John's not craving a drink. No, but it was just such hanging on by a thin thread that I was sure I was going to cave after a point. I'm sure Tony. And he says, by this too, but this too passed. My fellows pointed out that I have, what I have been through, the weight I was carrying and what uh, I have achieved. Yes, I didn't lift up the drink. I prayed. Yes, I meditated. But through all of this, God and the fellowship were carrying me through to a daily reprieve. I observed that my behavior would counter counterreact with my addictive behaviors, diet, training, etc., etc., but this too has quailed. I now have something that looks like a possible 7 to 10 week horizon for him to get moved into a home, hopefully of my choosing. At least it is on the horizon. Until now, I have had 13 weeks of the complete unknown and continual I'll be with you in two minutes, or can you wait from the hospital staff and the doctors daily? Boy, my patients uh, at times ran completely dry. Your podcast, John, are also full of support. I now can turn to it at any time. I can take a walk and listen to a calming knowledge, strength, and hope. I can weep in silence at the stories or the grateful uh, that what I am dealing with is insignificant by comparison. For your service, your strength, and your continued uh, hope, I truly thank you, John. May the love of God shine upon you on a daily basis. Lots of love, Tony D. Best regards, and then he always signs it with. I don't. I can't remember how to pronounce this. Venlighausen, I think, is also the same thing as a, a best regard. With Tony, God bless you, my friend. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I can kind of. Uh, Mm, supply a audio version of the struggles that you're going through and maybe you can have this to listen to um in years to come anyway god bless you tony uh thanks for writing in uh thanks for all your kind words and uh, prayers for you as you're going through this tough time with your father all right everybody that's it uno mas Samana down for uh, another week of Sober Speak, another episode in the can, as they call it. Kind of a weird word, isn't it? Uh, but nonetheless, uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then. I take this one week at a time. Hope to be back next week. Love you guys. Bye-bye.